This is They Create Worlds, Episode 60, William's Crazy Story, Part 2. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. This is part two of William's crazy story. We don't know why it's crazy. Well, it's mostly crazy because of all of those spinoffs and mergers and acquisitions and additional spinoffs that we talked about at some length in the first episode. We're mostly past that at this point, though there's still a few final twists to throw in there before we wind down the story of what at this point is now called WMS Industries, a holding company that now not only has all of the Williams properties, but also has all of the old Bally Midway properties as well after purchasing that company in 1988, which is where we left the story at the end of our previous episode. Pretty much right after the crash. You know, a few years on from the crash as the company recovered and really got back into pinball again and basically got out of video. Right. And it was primarily because of pinball that really helped them uniquely survive the entire crash situation. Exactly. Big part of that story, which we didn't talk about last time, a big part of that was actually a sales guy at the company named Joe Dillon. He was an old hand in the business. He's dead now. He died in the, in the 90s, I believe. But he was a great fan of pinball. He really pushed management not to get rid of the pinball infrastructure and the pinball talent while video was hot in the early 1980s just because he loved the game so much and thought that William shouldn't let it die. And sure enough, he looked like a genius when video went all to heck and then Williams needed pinball again to keep going in the business. So now we're post-crash, we're post-video, they got pinball again, they're going strong, they have Bally, who used to be the big dog, but now pinball has pretty much collapsed down to more or less Williams. And Data East. And Data East. Exactly. Video is starting to make a comeback, because as we talked about in our arcades after the crash episode it's not like video went away forever video had a few very bad years and then video came back but when video came back it wasn't the american companies that were dominating it was the japanese companies it was namco it was konami it was capcom it was taito these were the companies that were now dominating the arcade scene and it felt like it would be a difficult thing to break their Not Monopoly, because certainly Atari was still putting out some interesting arcade product as well, but break their kind of stranglehold on the market. And a lot of that really just came down to the fact that these Japanese companies had large teams that they can throw at a product. We talked about this a little bit before. The Japanese being a more communal culture, they got to teams on games a lot sooner than the Americans did. They had a very rich tradition of visual media through manga and anime. So if you look at the games of the mid to late 1980s coming out of Japan, obviously they're primitive compared to what we have today, but 
They're very well animated. They're very bright and colorful graphics, very cartoony. And that's because they have this rich visual tradition and they'll have two or three or four or even more artists all working on the same game. And you just don't get that in the U.S. But just when it seemed like there would really be no way for the American companies to kind of work their way back in, our good friend Eugene Jarvis decides to come back to video games. All the way back. You may recall from the previous episode that Eugene Jarvis was the brilliant designer and programmer of some of Williams' biggest hits, none more so than Defender and Robotron 2084. Which, if you saw the show notes that were in the previous episode, those are very visually stunning things, especially the arcade versions. Mm -hmm. The colors that are so vibrant that it almost looks like vector graphics. Mm -hmm. It's astonishing what he was able to pull off. Exactly. And when the crash hit, he left the industry. I mean, he kind of saw that he wasn't going to be able to, to get much action anymore. And so he decided to go back to school. He decided to go back and get an MBA, and he actually left the industry entirely. But around 1986 or so, he came back. He came back to Williams. Williams wasn't doing much in video at that time, but they were still exploring it. They were still kind of there, but obviously the pinball had kind of taken over again. And Eugene Jarvis was not the only one to come back. One of the real unsung heroes from this period is another designer and programmer named Warren Davis. Warren Davis was at Gottlieb slash Millstar in the early 1980s, and he was the lead designer and programmer on a little game called Qbert. I remember Qbert being really popular. Oh, yes, very popular. There was even a Saturday morning cartoon. Yes. You know you made it in the early 80s when you had a Saturday morning cartoon. Definitely. Yeah, it was, it was a very popular game. Did about 25,000 units, which is very good for an arcade game. It was an isometric platformer, essentially. I mean, it was single screen, but you had all these cubes, kind of Escher-like cubes, and you had to bounce between those cubes to turn them all the same color. And meanwhile, there were enemies that you had to dodge and also enemies that were turning the squares other colors. So there was all of this stuff going on, single screen, platforming, isometric kind of game. He ended up at Williams in around 1986 as well. At this period of time, he started to become very interested in the concept of digitized graphics. Digitization is something we talked about before. That is when you take a real-life image or a real-life video and you convert it into computer graphics, essentially, two-dimensional sprite graphics. This was something that had been possible in the early 80s. And in fact, Bally had even done a game featuring the band Journey that used these digitized graphics. The problem to that point is that you could only do them in black and white. You could not do them in color. And that's because when you have a hardware system that does eight colors, that's not going to be very true to life. If you're trying to map eight colors to a real video. Yeah, it's going to look like Windows 95 (laughs) without drivers. (laughs) Exactly. With a bad video card and you don't even get to full 16 colors. (laughs) Exactly. 
this is something that's been possible for a while, but it was only in the kind of mid 1980s when the Amiga came out, which actually had true color. It actually had 16 bit color. Well, 16 bit and even beyond, it also had 4096 colors in its true color mode. So it actually had a lot of colors. It started to become possible to play around with digitized stuff a little more. Now, the Amiga couldn't really do animation with digitization very well because like that true color mode was basically a static mode. But soon after that, there was a company that came out with what it called its Targa board. It was a special board that you could plug into the IBM PC that had a more advanced raster graphics format with more colors that you could use to kind of do this digitization. Do you know the uh, the TGA file format? Yeah. That comes from Targa. Oh, they're the ones responsible for days of nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I have to open up very entertaining files at work. <laughs> yes, the company was called TrueVision. And the board was the Targa board, and the Targa board outputted these digitized animations in the TGA file format, and so that was the originator of TGA. <laughs> Little file extension trivia there. Yep. So Warren Davis started playing around with this stuff, just kind of on his own, just because it fascinated him, not necessarily relating to his work, but he found this stuff very, very interesting. And this was going on at the same time that Eugene Jarvis was trying to figure out how to beat the Japanese, or at the very least, how to equal the Japanese and get Williams back into video games in a way that made sense. What Jarvis came up with, and I think there's an episode we talked about this sometime in the distant past, some general arcade episode. I don't know. I don't listen to these things. (laughs) I listened to them twice, but I don't have them memorized. (laughs) But I believe we talked about this a little bit in the past. What Eugene Jarvis realized is we're never going to beat the Japanese on graphics and animation. We're just not going to be able to do that. They're too good at it, and they throw too many people at it. But where we can beat them is technology. The Japanese tend to be historically a little bit behind on technology. We've talked about this before. That isn't to say that the Japanese aren't great at working with technology. It's just that usually they wait for someone else to come up with a technology, and then they examine it, analyze it, cost-reduce it, minimize it, and, you know. They refine it to an art form. They really do. But they're often not the originators. So Eugene Jarvis figures if we put an arcade hardware out that is sophisticated enough, we can attract attention with our technology rather than with our craftsmanship of our graphics and our animation and all of that kind of thing. So he starts to work on an arcade board that has a 32-bit processor. One of the first, if not the very first, arcade hardwares with a 32-bit processor instead of a 16-bit processor. And which can display 256 colors, far more than your typical 16 colors. Even at that time, it's often 16 colors or 32 colors. It's rarely 256 colors. And then a fairly large monitor with a higher resolution, it's a higher resolution than your typical raster scan television. We're still not talking HD. We're talking kind of a medium resolution thing. But a nice sized monitor that's a higher resolution than your standard television. 
We're talking a very nice hardware setup here, something that really hasn't been done yet at this point in the industry. I'm talking late 1980s for context. Now that we're at 256 colors at a decent resolution, now the stuff that Warren Davis is doing, this video digitization stuff that he's doing with his True Vision board, his Targa board on his PC, is applicable to this new arcade hardware. They decide to feature Warren Davis's digitized graphics stuff that he's been doing as part of this new hardware. So Eugene Jarvis has gotten some credit for this before in a few sources, though this period really isn't discussed in many sources. So even he's not gotten that much credit. But Warren Davis is kind of the unsung hero. His name doesn't really come up in this. People know him as the designer of Qbert. But people don't realize that all of the Williams games that we're about to talk about, that incredible run of success that we hinted at at the end of the last episode in the late 80s and early 90s, was as much due to Warren Davis's work as it was to Eugene Jarvis's work. They really became a duo in order to propel Williams into a new era. Exactly. So this hardware debuts with a little game called NARC. NARC! (laughs) Do you remember NARC from the arcades? I remember it from my arcade in Hawaii. I remember seeing it there. I never actually saw NARC in the arcade. I know of the game more recently because of things that have come up. Mm -hmm. If I recall correctly, you're a cop and you're trying to... Named Max Force. That's right. He's awesome. (laughs) He's going to clean up the druggies. That's right. And by clean up, we mean shoot them all and arrest them. (laughs) And for those who can't see the live picture, which is pretty much everyone except for Alec, I did air quotes there. (laughs) That's right. Yes, it is a very extremely violent game. Now, it's interesting. Eugene Jarvis chose the subject matter because he actually knew several people. He had some friends that had had their lives kind of ruined by drug addiction. That's where the theme kind of came from. It's like, you know, we really need to clean up these streets of these drugs kind of thing. And I mean, that was something in the air, too. I mean, there were a lot of movies about, you know, action heroes going after drug kingpins and whatnot. There's also the time where you had the war on drugs going on. Exactly. And all the arcade monitors say no to drugs. Winners don't use drugs. Dare. (laughs) That's right. So it was in the air, but he also chose it for very personal reasons as well. It's violent. They had these digitized graphics. They got these actors or just people off the street in. I mean, most of them weren't real actors, so I think they used a couple of real actors. And they had them come in and they filmed them doing all of these animations and all of these various costumes. And so the graphics of the people in this game are actually based on real people. Digitized graphics look, I think, very weird today. They're like they're a relic of a different age. It was a very short-lived thing because you had sprites, 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 then you had polygons, polygons, polygons. The home hardware of this period wasn't really that great at doing the digitized graphics. I mean, some of these games were ported to the home, but it wasn't as great at it, so it wasn't something that ever really took over the home, and it only very briefly took over the arcade before everything went polygon. Digitized games, as you'll see when we put several of these games in the show notes, they look really weird today. But at the time, it's kind of a time and place thing. They were so new and so different that even though they look kind of funny, they kind of looked amazing at the same time. I would argue they still look amazing and hold up better than early polygon graphics. 
There's a yeah. side of me when early Polygon games came out, I looked at those and like, but you were doing all this stuff with fights and digitized graphics. It looked awesome. And now you have this blocky whatever moving around. Well, you know, you lost a lot of nuance and expression because, of course, when it's a digitized performance, I mean, even though the resolution is fairly low resolution compared to the human eye, so it's not like you're seeing great facial expressions or whatever, but you could have expressions and you could have fluid animation. And in the early days of polygons, when you had very, very low polygon counts, you really couldn't do that. So I agree with you totally. You took a step back in terms of realism of animation, realism of movement, that it took polygonal graphics several years to overcome, a decade or more even. We're only just now, in some ways, overcoming it. You know, digitized graphics, they look kind of strange in other ways. It's, you know, a weird kind of format. There, there were kind of trade-offs between digitized graphics and early polygonal graphics, and, and ultimately the market went polygonal. <laughs> but I agree with you. So they do this game, NARC, and yeah, you're blowing away these drug dealers and arresting some of them. And Jeff very properly put that in air quotes because it's far more fun just killing everybody. But Eugene Jarvis, as we talked about with Defender and Robotron both, he always liked the idea of having a little bit more strategy in his games, a little bit more choice in his games, even when they're straight action games like a Robotron. If you killed enough druggies, and drug dealers, eventually some of them would surrender to you. And if they did that, you had the option to go up and arrest them by going up and touching them. And you got more points for doing that. So if you were a score chaser, then you have this conundrum of do you keep shooting everything or do you risk getting close to the enemies to arrest a few of them for more points? That was kind of the trade-off. But yeah, you usually just blow them all away. When you use the rocket launcher, there's like body parts flying everywhere. I mean, it's Blood, it's fairly gore. graphic, yeah. Mothers would look at their kids playing this and go, why are you playing this, little Johnny and little <laughs> Susie? N- 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 no, you're going to not get any more quarters for that. <laughs> right. But it was, you know, it did well. It was, it was a mild hit. It was a minor hit, you know. Not a huge game, but it did all right. But the most important thing that it did is that it established this new arcade hardware and this new digitized graphics technology that would become the cornerstone of the next several years of Midway hits. And so Eugene Jarvis and Warren Davis kind of got this ball rolling, but then it was some other people at the company that really took it and ran with it. The very first of these people uh, that we have to introduce is a fellow by the name of Mark Termell. Mark Termell is probably the last great American arcade designer, by which I mean, chronologically speaking, he was the last of the great American arcade designers to start designing arcade games. His history with video games actually went back much further. He was a teenage prodigy in the early 1980s. He started making VCS games. Atari 2600 games as a teenager that were published by Sirius Software, a company that we've mentioned once or twice in the past that was very well known for its action games on the Apple II before the crash. He got a lot of notoriety for that. Then when Sirius went belly up, he went to Activision and he did a couple of games for them. He did some of their first computer games when they were transitioning away from console after the crash. 
Then he went and worked on Nemo, which was Hasbro's attempt to enter the video game market using a system based around video cassette. You remember the game Night Trap that appeared on the Sega CD, the very controversial vampire game that started out as being on this Nemo system that Hasbro was working on that was ultimately canceled. And then when that was done, he joined Williams. So he was new to arcade games in 1990, but he wasn't new to designing video games. He'd been around and was very well known for some of the work he had done in his younger days. And certainly with having access to arcade hardware, he would be able to do more, I would think, if he's more limited to home consoles previously. Absolutely. And he was a huge fan of Robotron. Absolutely huge fan. Robotron never got a sequel because it came out in 1982. It came out right before the crash. So there really wasn't time to do a sequel. By the time the game had been successful and it would have been time to introduce another one, the market was falling apart. So Mark Turmel wanted to do a sequel to Robotron, essentially. And it wasn't so much that the game needed to be in the same universe or have the exact same elements to it, but he loved that dual joystick control that we talked about, where you have a shooter in which one joystick is used for movement and one is used for shooting, so you can be moving in one direction and shooting in the other direction, and it's a very intuitive control scheme. That's what he really liked. And those games are really, really fun. So he started with this idea of twin joystick control and kind of the idea of a dystopian future, because Robotron, as you may recall, kind of had this idea that you're protecting the last human family and robots have taken over everything. So it's a dystopia kind of thing. He starts with that as the base, but then he takes some other elements into it. He's influenced by a couple of things, a couple of movies that came out in 1987. One of them is The Running Man, which starred Arnold Schwarzenegger. And this was basically a movie about a dystopian future in which convicted criminals are turned loose in this kind of obstacle course and are hunted down by professional killers, and it's a television show. We're hunting down criminals for fun and profit. I'll try to find a trailer for it. Uh-huh. So he was kind of influenced by that. And then he was also influenced by RoboCop, which is very dystopian, but it's also this idea of not so much of the, of the RoboCop character or that, but the television stuff, the satirical television commercials and whatnot. I'd buy that for a dollar. You remember that? Yes, I do. (laughs) So these kind of ideas of dystopia and television show and being hunted down for entertainment, and you kind of throw all that together, and you get smashed TV. But I like my TV. No, no, no. Your TV doesn't get smashed. Your people get smashed on the TV. Oh, right. For your amusement. So you, you get that idea. You know, you can see how that kind of derives from The Running Man and... Mm -hmm. Uh, especially, but he's also pulling from RoboCop. He's pulling from the original Robotron. He's pulling from a lot of different sources here. And it's a game show. Exactly. And I can get all the money. Yes. And the women. (laughs) Yes. And find your way into the Pleasure Dome. Excellent. Except that there was just one problem. What? They ran out of time. What do you mean they ran out of time? They couldn't get all of the features into the game before Williams made them ship it. So there were no pleasure domes. You're saying the game's a giant bait and switch. Yes, because there are keys that you can collect. 
And the game indicates that if you collect enough keys, you can get to the pleasure domes. But there are no pleasure domes. Please tell me they fixed this in a later version. They did fix it in a later version. Oh, they, were, they were forced to. When the Williams marketing people and salespeople found out that this had happened, they were like, you're fixing this. <laughs> but, but you're the ones who told us to ship it. <laughs> yeah. So what is it? Which is it? Am I shipping it or am I fixing it, then shipping it? I don't think sales sees this as a contradiction, Jeff. Oh, God. (laughs) I think we're all doomed. (laughs) Right. But Smash TV was a great hit because it had that same twin stick kind of action. But instead of a single screen, you're going through a maze of rooms. You have some of the more modern arcade concepts like levels and bosses they did some absolutely ridiculous bosses it's multiplayer yes multiplayer of course and so it's just a lot of fun it's fast action it's taking advantage of the new hardware again and it's just a rock solid game and it does big business so now we've done narc we've done smash tv williams is coming back under midway that's right that's a good point Because we have to remember, we mentioned this at the end of the last episode, that after they purchased Bally Midway, they actually started releasing all of their video games under the Midway brand, because Midway is the brand that released Space Invaders. They're the brand that released Galaxian. They're the brand that released Pac-Man. They are the far more recognizable brand in video games compared to Williams, which is really well known as a pinball company. These are Midway games, but the company is actually Williams, just using that Midway name on their video games. So now we've got those two games going. Then they have another hit because they get the license to Terminator 2, which is kind of a big deal. Maybe. And so they do a light gun game and they use their digitized hardware again. That game does well. Oh, yeah. I liked that game. Yes. So they've got all of these hits coming, but there's one guy that's a little bit put out by some of this, a little bit frustrated, even with all of these wonderful toys. And that guy is an artist named John Tobias. John Tobias was a very talented young artist. He had uh, come to the company. I think he was just 19 when he came to the company. He didn't have formal computer graphics training because at that time there really was no such thing. But he kind of was interested in that, so he kind of picked it up on his own. He was a talented regular artist, and then he kind of picked up how to do that as computer art on his own. And he joins Williams, Midway, whatever you want to call it. He does art on Smash TV, but Smash TV has little characters. Narc has bigger characters than Smash TV does, but they're still kind of just these medium-sized characters. There's this great digitization hardware and they're not doing much with it because it's all these teeny tiny little characters that's no fun for an artist like john tobias so he starts to think how can we get bigger characters on the screen it's a memory thing like it always is if you have bigger characters on the screen those characters take up more memory And you can only have so many of them on the screen before it just slows your processor to zero. So he thinks back to his youth in an arcade game that he really liked called Karate Champ, which we have discussed before Mm -hmm. in our fighting game episode. 
it was a one-on-one karate bout. Because in a one-on-one fighting game, you only need two characters on the screen. And so since there are only two characters on the screen, you can make them very large and very detailed. So he gets to talking with another person in the division, a programmer named Ed Boone. Ed Boone's been with the company for about three years now, but he was a programmer in the pinball division. He was not programming video games. But he's now come over to the video side of it. So he's new there. And they get to talking, and it's like, why don't we do a one-on-one fighting game using our digitization technology? Because that allows to have big, bold characters and really show off what these digitization techniques can do. You see, at this point, Street Fighter II has not come out yet. Obviously, we are building towards Mortal Kombat, which does come out after Street Fighter II. But the planning for this came before Street Fighter II. So Street Fighter II did not influence their decision to go here. It was the combination of remembering Karate Champ, being enamored with Bruce Lee movies, and wanting to do something with a digitization hardware that would allow really big characters. That's what they decided to do. They decided to do a fighting game. They figure that to do something like this, they really need to put a license behind it. Because this is a period of time when everyone knows that licenses kind of sell games, you know? Mm -hmm. Licenses are good for that. They decide to license Jean-Claude Van Damme, who is very much an up-and-coming martial arts movie star at the time, star of films like Bloodsport. So they try to get in touch with him and his people. They never hear anything back. Some sources say that he had already had a deal with somebody else, Sager or something like that. But um, Roger Sharp, who was in charge of licensing at the time, says that Jean-Claude Van Damme's camp never even bothered to get back to them. So they decide, well, if we can't get a hot license, we'll just make our own characters. We'll make our own mythology. They're very heavily influenced by Eastern martial arts movies, not just like the Bruce Lee stuff, though obviously that's also an influence. But Tobias was really into like Taiwan and Hong Kong cinema. He used to get bootleg cassette tapes of Taiwanese or Hong Kong movies in Chinatown in Chicago. And he was particularly enamored with this kind of wuxia cinema. I'm sure I'm horribly mispronouncing that word, but W-U-X-I-A, wuxia cinema, which was this kind of Taiwanese style of martial arts movie where everything's a little bit exaggerated, where characters are able to pull off martial arts moves that are not actually possible in the real world. It stays sort of true to life, but it's exaggerated and more fantastic. There's more fantasy elements in it. A more modern take on this would be Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Exactly. That's the movie that really introduced the West to this concept, because that was kind of the first one that crossed over to the West. You see, most people didn't know what Wuja was in like 1990, 1991, when John Tobias is coming up with this, but because he's been watching these bootlegs from Taiwan, he knows what this is. So they create this kind of story and world that is influenced by Wuja in the fact that it has some more fantastical characters, some more ridiculous moves, and kind of combine that with some Western characters 
that are more grounded special forces characters and whatnot, like Sonya, you know, it's kind of this East meets West kind of blend of fantasy and reality that is Mortal Kombat. And of course, they use the digitized graphics. For the first game, they just find friends. They know some people that are martial arts instructors or that kind of thing. And so they invite a few of these people in to do the moves because with these digitized graphics, you're actually filming people doing this stuff and then converting it into a computer graphics format. So they get people in and film them doing all of these crazy moves and whatnot. And they've come up with this kind of crazy backstory for it, partially influenced by Bruce Lee, partially influenced by Wuja, partially influenced from gosh knows where else, and come up with this Mortal Kombat game. And we talked about Mortal Kombat some with the fighting game episode. So some of this is a little bit of repeat, but you know, they've got all of these elements and it's working really well. And then when they're putting it together, when they're playing it, there are certain periods of time where, you know, once a character's been kind of really beaten up, they'd kind of become stunned and just kind of be, you know, motionless there in, in the middle of the screen. And they start thinking to themselves, well, wouldn't it be nice if instead of them just being dazed there, that at this moment, the other character can do a really kind of outlandish, over-the-top move on them while they're stunned and completely defenseless. Fatality. Exactly. And so you get the fatalities in there because of that. We also talked about how one of the hallmarks of Mortal Kombat was juggling. And the juggling was something that started as a bug. You weren't supposed to be essentially locked out of countering a series of moves. But it was so fun that when they realized they had that, they not only kept it in, but they enhanced it. And so you have these graphics like nobody's ever seen. You have these controls that feel pretty good, and you have this juggling, which can make you feel really powerful, this kind of combo-based stuff, which hadn't been seen to that degree in a fighting game yet. And you have these fatality moves that are really hard to pull off, but so satisfying when you do. As an added bonus, you happen to have Street Fighter II come out and completely revitalize the market for one-on-one fighting games. And people are hungry for more. And here you come out with non-sprite graphics, with this digitized graphics. It's more violent than Street Fighter. You have fatalities. It's so violent, Congress talks about it. That's right. Exactly. So Mortal Kombat, huge arcade hit. Another one, they just, game after game after game. I mean, it's like Williams can practically do no wrong in this period. But as big as Mortal Kombat was, it was not the biggest. Because there's only one of these games, really probably only one game practically in the entirety of the early 1990s, that took in over $1 billion worth of quarters. That's a lot of quarters and a lot of laundry. And that game was NBA Jam. Wait, a sports game? Boom shakalaka! Oh, true. (laughs) And for this, we go back to our other brilliant designer, Mark Turmel. Williams had been doing sports games for a couple of years. And not only had they been doing sports games, but Bally had actually done a sports game as well. Williams did a game called High Impact Football. Eugene Jarvis did this game, did it with John Newcomer, who we talked about as the person behind Joust in the early days. John Newcomer still the company, too. High Impact Football did okay. It didn't do great. John Newcomer blames it on sales. 
Basically, he says that it was earning like mad on test, but they weren't able to actually get the game out until after the Super Bowl had already ended. And traditionally, interest in football stuff goes away after the Super Bowl and then picks up again in the fall when when football season starting up again. And so sales didn't think they'd be able to sell a football game in the offseason. According to John Newcomer, he feels they didn't really push it very well. He felt it could have done better because the earnings were off the charts. It was making like a thousand a week on test, which was good in those days. But for whatever reason, high-impact football doesn't do that well, though it does spawn a sequel, super high-impact football. Mark Turmel, being a basketball fan, kind of wanted to take this digitization technology, this famous digitization technology that we have here, and turn it towards a basketball game, quite simply because he was a basketball fan. Bally had done a basketball game called Arch Rivals right about the time that it was purchased by Williams. And the thing that separated Arch Rivals from other basketball games like your double dribbles was that it was a little bit street. You could actually punch the other player to take the ball away from them. It was a little bit rough. A bit of a problem, but uh, we can handle it. So Mark Turmel and his team kind of liked this idea of a basketball game where it's a little rougher, where it's not regulation, where it's a little bit against the rules. Street basketball in the inner cities. Exactly. But they wanted to apply it to the NBA and to an NBA license with NBA players. Two on two, because that's a lot easier to deal with. Just two on each side. And then plus you can make it a four player game, which brings in more quarters. Mark Turmel drove the design of it, but Eugene Jarvis added a very important element. He was not a member of the team that designed the game, but, you know, he's around because he designs games for Williams. That's what he does. And so they're making it a little bit crazier than reality. Having the players maybe be able to jump a little higher and dunk from a little further away just to, you know, make it more fun in the arcade. And Eugene Jarvis keeps being like, why don't you add a little more, a little more height? Why don't you add a little more height, a little more height? Until suddenly these players are doing these monster dunks where they're way above the rim and come crashing down. They're practically like superheroes now rather than NBA players. And not everyone on the team liked that at first. But that was the moment that the game truly became NBA Jam. Because it wasn't just about, let's put real NBA players in it, digitized, which they did. And it wasn't just about, let's make it a little more street, where you can kind of shove people to take the ball from and whatnot. It's, let's make these guys superheroes and have them do these crazy moves. And then when they've really done these superhuman moves a lot, let's give them a special animation and a special mode to recognize how awesome they're being. Like, say, being on fire. He's on fire! (laughs) That's right. Out of that is born what one might call the extreme sports genre, where you take not extreme sports in the sense of, you know, snowboarding at the X Games, but extreme sports in the sense of, let's take a real sport and real players and then dial it up way past what a human can actually do just to make it crazy fun. From downtown. He's on fire! That's right. So, that's NBA Jam. And it does a billion dollars in quarters in the arcades. I mean, it's just huge. 
absolutely gigantic. So that's kind of the last in this kind of big string of hits. They start with NARC, which isn't that big a hit, but at least it establishes this hardware. And then Smash TV, boom. Terminator 2, boom. Mortal Kombat, boom. NBA Jam, boom. Between 1989 and 1993, these guys at Williams are creating some of the biggest hits in the arcade. And then Acclaim is bringing them into the home. Williams is an arcade company. Williams does not have the capacity or the capability to do home video games. So Acclaim takes their licenses and their properties and says, yeah, I can put that on the Super Nintendo. I can put that on the Sega Genesis. I can put that on whatever. And it makes them a $500 million company. We talked about this, of course, because we did two episodes on Acclaim. I mean, they become a $500 million company, but it's not their games that are making all of this money. It's Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam because of this five-year deal that Williams has signed with Acclaim to let them do the home ports. Well, that doesn't sit well with the Nicastros who run the, the company. At this point, uh, Lewis has been joined in the business by his son, Neil, who becomes president of the company in 1991 and then becomes co-CEO of the company in the middle of 1994. So now Neil, the son, is running the company alongside Lewis, his father. The Nicastros are not happy about this at all. So they decide that they have to get in the home business. In 1994, they buy a console publisher called Trade West. Trade West had actually started as an arcade company itself down in Texas. Leland and Byron Cook founded the company to be an arcade game manufacturer, kind of when video games were coming back after the crash. And then they had ended up creating a home division and had released a small number of games in the home. The most successful thing that they had by far is they were actually the ones that brought Double Dragon, the original Double Dragon, to the NES. It wasn't a very good port of Double Dragon. For one thing, they kind of forgot about the double part of Double Dragon. (laughs) Technical difficulties. (laughs) Right. But Double Dragon was huge. And so it still sold like 2 million units because it was Double Dragon, even if it wasn't that great a port. They were also the ones that brought Battletoads to the home. Rare, of course, is the company that created the game, but Trade West is the one that published it. So they'd had a couple of games that did all right, and they had an established home division. So in 1994, Williams, WMS Industries, acquires Trade West and renames it Williams Entertainment. Williams Entertainment becomes the console game arm of Williams Electronics, or WMS Industries. Got more of this crazy stuff going on, mergers and acquisitions and spinoffs, oh my. Oh yeah. And new names. We might need a flowchart. <laughs> Indeed. And of course then they had a five-year deal with a claim, and they have to honor that deal, but that deal's just about up. When that deal is over, they do not renew that deal. And they prepare to enter the home market. They decide to make a big splash by partnering with Nintendo on the N64. When Nintendo was putting together that piece of hardware, they were really trying to emphasize how realistic and how lifelike it was. The code name was Project Reality. 
And so they didn't want to just use it as a home hardware. They actually wanted to use it as an arcade hardware as well. And so to kind of build hype for the N64 before it came out, they partnered with a couple of companies to do arcade games using the Project Reality hardware. Now, they cheated a bit. It wasn't exactly the Project Reality hardware. It had more RAM. It had more capability because an arcade board can always do more than a home system can. But the idea was to have Rare and to have Williams create an arcade game or two showing off the hardware. And then they would have the exclusive home rights to that arcade game for the N64. So Williams decides to get in on this. They become part of the so-called Dream Team of Developers, which were a small group of third-party developers that Nintendo gave intimate advanced access to the Project Reality hardware in exchange for an exclusive title. The Dream Team was marketing nonsense. All the big Japanese companies refused to be a part of it because they didn't want to tie themselves down to Nintendo exclusively. They learned their lesson on that the first time around. So, you know, was it a dream team? No. But the important thing is Williams decides to be involved in this, and Williams then really supports Nintendo on the N64 as one of their first forays into the home. And that's when they create the racing game Cruise in USA. Uh, it's Eugene Jarvis again, our friend Eugene Jarvis. Fun game. I yeah. own it. Yes, it is. It is a fun game. It's It's not a remarkable racing game, really, in any way. I mean, it's not, it wasn't groundbreaking, really. It wasn't special like that but it was fun you know it was fun it did feel like you were playing an arcade game in the home right if you play the n64 version of cruising usa it doesn't feel like an n64 game it feels like you're playing something that maybe would be on the playstation or on an early arcade machine it was really really well done Mm -hmm. absolutely And it was an arcade machine first, using that Project Reality hardware, though, like I said, a more advanced version of it than was actually in the N64. So that launches a very successful series, and that helps get Williams into the home with their new subsidiary, Trade West. Some of these companies, like Williams, that decide to support the N64, it was both a good and a bad thing. It was good because... There were so few third-party developers that really did embrace the N64 that owners of the system were kind of starved for software. So it was very easy for a third party to be successful on that system. The bad side was that ultimately the PlayStation has cleaned the clock of the N64, and these companies that tended to focus on the N64 never got on the PlayStation to the same degree. And so when this console generation ended, They kind of had trouble when they were transitioning to the PS2 era. So it's kind of a mixed bag. It's it's a good way for them to get their console division started, but they probably should have focused more on the PlayStation than they did on the N64. The other problem with Williams' home division, which continues to be a problem after they get rid of it, after it's spun off into its own company, which we'll get to later, is that they are arcade people. They are arcade designers. And so the games that they put out on consoles tend to be very similar to arcade games. And as time goes on, as home games get more sophisticated, expansive role-playing games like Final Fantasy VII, cinematic stealth games like Metal Gear Solid, 
horror games like Resident Evil. Arcade games start to feel very simplistic next to some of these more in-depth and sometimes even open-world experiences available on console. Williams has a home division, and they release home games, and some of them do well, like Cruisin' USA, but they never really become a star in the home because they really don't know how to get past their arcade game three minutes of action or a minute and a half of action for a quarter kind of mentality, if that makes sense. It does. So they have a concept of, I'm designing these games to have quick, fun action. I'm trying to push quarters. I don't have time to have someone have a game where I'm putting in a quarter and I get this long, drawn out narrative or suspenseful experience. It's, I need this action now. We're shooting up this thing. We're shooting up that thing. We're having fun, more twitching, Mm -hmm. more twitch action as opposed to more contemplative that you would get in the home environment. Exactly. But anyway, that's their kind of first foray into the home. Now, while all of this is going on, there are a lot of other changes going on at WMS Industries that we kind of have to discuss now. You may recall that back in the early 80s, we talked about this in the previous episode, they had gotten into the casino business in Puerto Rico. They had wanted to get involved in, like, Atlantic City, but they couldn't get a license, so they went to Puerto Rico. They still kind of want to go down this other path, which is the gambling path, because that's, quite frankly, overall, a more profitable part of coin-op than the video games and pinball are. If you can get into that slot machine market, both in terms of manufacturing them and in terms of operating them, there is ultimately a lot more money there if you can manage to break in. That's certainly what Bally found. I mean, Bally ultimately sells off its video game and pinball business because that's in the doldrums and it decides to focus on its casino business and its slot machine business, which had always been lucrative. Bally became the first publicly traded coin-op company, not because it had a nice pinball business. It became the first publicly traded coin-op company because it cornered 90% of the slot machine market. That's where the money is. People like their slots. Williams starts easing into this in the early 90s. I mean, they couldn't do it during the crash because their finances were in disarray. And then they needed time to build back up again after the crash. So in the early 90s, they start going into this again. And they start easing in first by going into video lottery terminals. They do that in 1992. Because that's a relatively new field, not as complicated maybe to break into. Then in 1994, they move into actual slot machines. And so they're starting to focus more and more on this gambling part of the business. And so as their video lottery terminal and slot machine business starts to get more profitable, they start looking at trimming stuff that they feel may be just a little less profitable. So in 1996, they get out of the casino business in Puerto Rico. It's never been very good for them. They kind of cut their ties with that. That same year, they also end up buying Atari games from Time Warner. Time Warner had actually repurchased, which we probably talked about in our Atari Brands episode, had actually repurchased Atari, so it was part of Warner again. Atari Games was the arcade arm. And in 1996, they purchase Atari games from Time Warner. 
They consolidate manufacturing in Chicago, but they let the Atari people stay in California in terms of the R&D. So now the company controls Williams, Bally Midway, and Atari. Basically, all the big American arcade companies are all wrapped up in one company now. Which is kind of amazing. Mm -hmm, It really is. But it's not a good fit anymore because they're getting WMS more and more involved in the slot machine business. And so when the Nicastros have a couple of companies that aren't necessarily a good fit, what do they do? They throw them away. They spin them out. And so in 1996, the same year they buy Atari games, they also do a partial spinoff, just a partial spinoff of the video game division, which includes Atari games, as Midway Incorporated. They still own it, but they did a partial stock offering just to raise some money. Two years later, late 90s now, the arcade video game market's kind of in decline again. They never really got a good foothold in the home for the reasons partially that we already discussed. And so they decide that they should really completely divest that. So in 1998, they do a complete spinoff. It's another Nicaster spinoff. First one we've had this episode, but you may recall we had a bunch of them in the last episode. They spin off Midway into its completely own company. Completely independent. Sort of. It is independent, but it stays in the family. Neil Nicastro, who had been serving as president and co-CEO of WMS Industries, becomes the CEO of Midway. He leaves his executive positions at WMS Industries at this point, though he stays on the board. Louis Nicastro comes back into the picture now. He had been the chairman of the company and the co-CEO with his son, but now he becomes the president of WMS again and the sole CEO, in addition to being the chairman. So it's Louis Nicastro back in charge again as they focus more on this gambling stuff. And so this is the end, right here in 1998. This is the end of WMS, of Williams, as a video game company. From this point on, all of those games that have Midway on them, whether they be arcade games or home games, is truly and utterly Midway. That's right. But they are still in one venerable, coin-operated amusement. Pinball. That's right. Because Williams is a pinball company. And what a pinball company. Because in the early 90s, at the same time, they are having this fantastic success in video with Smash TV and Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam, they are also going through an incredible run of pinball. Thanks to our good friend Steve Ritchie, who we talked about before, brilliant pinball designer, and also Larry DeMar, who had helped out Eugene Jarvis on Defender. We talked about, of course, how they had these big hits in the mid-1980s, culminating in High Speed, which we talked about at some length. At the beginning of the 90s, They have an even bigger hit, a little game called Funhouse. I believe you are familiar with Funhouse. Oh, yes, I am quite familiar with it. I've played it. I've stared at the creepy little mannequin thing or puppet or ventriloquist puppet or whatever the heck it is. (laughs) It's probably need to be dragged out into the street and shot. (laughs) Right. And we'll talk about him a little more in a second. But that's, that's the thing we talked about in the last episode how part of what made Williams so successful in pinball coming out of the video game crash is that their designers 
many of whom came out of Atari, Steve Ritchie came out of Atari, understood how to take the most applicable elements and most appealing elements of video games, multimedia, flashy sights and sounds, synthesized voice, etc., and transplant them into pinball so much as you could. It's not a video game pinball hybrid, but it's taking elements of video that are attractive and that work in pinball and then merging them with pinball. And we talked about that in high speed with the soundtrack and the siren and all of that. But in Funhouse, they take that to a whole new level because they have the head. It mocks you. It talks to you. Its eyes follow the ball around the track. And it sounds a little creepy. Exactly. It's just such a brilliant feature. And so, of course, that attracts people to the game in droves. But even that pales in comparison to the game that they release in 1992, The Addams Family. Ah, yes. Another game I've enjoyed. Now, Adam's Family actually comes out under the Bally name. But you remember, uh, we talked about this briefly at the end of the last episode, that after they purchased Bally, they actually alternated between releasing pinball tables under the Williams name and the Bally name, because the Bally name was a respected name in pinball. So they wanted to keep using that name, and it made it seem a little less like they were completely dominating the market. Believe me, kids, they were completely dominating the market. Oh, yeah. Adam's family took this gimmick thing to a whole new level, even from our talking head friend, who was mostly just cosmetic, because it introduced the thing. Thing helps you (laughs) or hurts you. It all depends. Right, because thing, the hand from the Adam's family, could actually appear on the table, would actually come up and grab your ball. (laughs) Don't know my ball. And so, you know, the Adams Family movie was a big hit, so it had a good license. It had a good gimmick, just like Funhouse did in Thing. It had good scoring mechanics, good play mechanics, good narrative, like all the, the Good Williams tables did. And it is the single best-selling flipper pinball game in history. I see you qualified that. Yes. It sold over 20,000 units. As you know from all our talk about pinball, didn't have flippers back in the day. There were some games in the Great Depression, some of the very first hit pinball games that did 50,000 units, 60,000 units, 75,000 units. But those pinball games, it was a completely different game. You know, it was pins and holes and no flippers. Modern pinball, kind of in a way, dates from the introduction of the flipper in 1947. Pinball was never as big after the Depression as it was before the Depression in terms of total unit sales of Mm -hmm. individual tables. Everything post-World War II doesn't necessarily do as well as the stuff in the 30s. But from 1947, when the flipper was introduced, all the way to the present day, the single best-selling pinball game in history is Adam's Family at over 20,000 units. Adam's Family is huge, and pinball peaks in the early 90s again. Kind of 92, 93, 94, kind of right in there. Pinball peaks. Pinball's at the height of its popularity again after it was big in the late 70s, then video killed it. Then it started slowly coming back, slowly coming back. Then it peaks kind of in the early 90s. At that point, they kind of run out of tricks. Pinball is a novelty. It's a gimmick thing. I mean, yeah, there can be something fun about batting the ball around, but what keeps people coming back to new table after new table over the course of decades is experiencing something new. And they're kind of out of tricks at this point, and pinball starts to go into decline. 
Williams is, is far and away the leader, far and away the market leader. They have 75 or so percent of the market. And Data East has most of the rest of the other 25%. In the 80s, there was another company called Premier as well that was a continuation of Gottlieb. But Premier never got very big and it's pretty much dead by this point. Data East Pinball becomes Sega Pinball in the middle of the decade, but it's the exact same company. It just Data East sold it to Sega. So Williams has about 75%. Data East slash Sega has about 25%. The pie is shrinking for everybody. The market is getting smaller. The designers at Williams can very much see the writing on the wall. It looks like pinball is on its way down. No. And so they try one last desperate attempt to save it. And that's a system called Pinball 2000. Have you ever played either of the Pinball 2000 games? There are two of them. One is the Star Wars Phantom Menace game. I have played that one. And the other one was called Revenge from Mars. I played that one too. Mm -hmm. I played them both. The fascinating thing about Pinball 2000 is that we were talking before about how Williams was trying to bring in the best elements of video into pinball in order to increase the appeal of pinball. But they weren't actually bringing in video elements. Well, now with Pinball 2000, they're doing exactly that. You literally have a video game in your playfield. Exactly. It's, it's a stunning graphical effect, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. It's, you don't know where the back of the cabinet ends and where the pinball rail stuff ends. It's very seamless when you're shooting your balls all over the place and you're hitting the back. In the Revenge from Mars one, you got aliens coming down. They're trying to attack things and you're trying to use your ball and the flippers in order to destroy those spaceships. And it takes one, two hits to destroy each spaceship. And mm-hmm. it's crazy. It's fun. It's addicting. It Yeah. It's a really, really well done. It's a fantastic evolution of pinball. It does it with a mirror effect. There's a mirror on the play field. It was actually inspired by a video game, uh, Asteroids Deluxe, which was not the only game to use mirroring in a play field, but that's the specific one that inspired them, where you use mirrors to direct those graphics onto the table. And it's fantastic, but it's very expensive. Oh, yeah. It's a very expensive hardware. So in order to justify that cost, You need to have a really big game. And Williams, quite simply, they screwed up. And it's amazing to believe that they screwed up in hindsight. Because it's like, how could you not see this? I told you one of the games was Star Wars Episode One. How could you screw up Star Wars? It pretty much you just slap that anywhere whenever a movie comes out and people come in droves. But here's the thing. It was the second of the two games released for the system. Bad Williams, no cookie. They started with the non-branded Revenge from Mars game. So without a powerful license behind it, it didn't really capture the public's imagination. It sold almost 7,000 units, which at this period of time was a good run for a pinball machine. Wasn't a good run even just like five years ago. But at this period of time, it's a good run for a pinball machine. They didn't need a good run for a pinball machine then to justify the hardware cost. They needed an exceptional run. Star Wars could have probably provided that. Instead, they started with the original non-licensed game. And then when that one didn't do well enough, they rushed 
the Star Wars game to get it out in time to try to salvage the project. So then, of course, it's not fully completed. And so when the Star Wars game comes out, it has problems and it it only sells about thirty five hundred units. Shame. And at that point, the Nicastros have had enough. It's just pinball is not making money. Traditional pinball is going to continue to decline. And we took our shot. We tried to evolve pinball into something new and different. It just didn't catch on well enough with the public. Williams, please come to my office. Williams, please come (laughs) to my office. So in 1999, they end the pinball division, which was still at Williams. They're already out of video at this point, remember, because all the video game stuff was... bye-bye with Midway. Exactly, in 1998. So now in 1999, they close down the pinball division. Which is a real shame, considering they used to control 75% of the market. Well, and they still did. It's just that the market was too small to justify being in it. Sega gets out at just about the same time. So at that point, pinball in America basically dies. Well, pinball around the world. I say America, but it's all made in America. So pinball around the world essentially dies. Gary Stern comes back a year or so later, and he was the guy in charge of Sega Pinball, and he starts up Stern Pinball, which still makes pinball machines today. So there's still, as we talked about before, a small pinball market. Mm -hmm. But it's small. It is very small. They've only put out about one or two tables a year. Yeah. A big company, a big publicly traded company like WMS Industries can't justify being in a market that small with no room for growth. It just doesn't work. And so in 1999, Williams exits a business that it had been in from the dawn of the company back in 1943. Which is a real, real shame. Yeah. And, and that's the end of WMS Industries as a video game company or a coin-operated entertainment company or, or any of that stuff. Just to, uh, you know, briefly, very briefly take the story from there. Nicastro, Louis Nicastro, remains in charge of the company until 2001 when he finally steps aside. And that's the end of the Nicastro family controlling Williams. At this point, they are a slot machine company, and they become the number two slot machine company in the world behind IGT, International Gaming Technologies. You know, they're very successful as a slot machine company. But in pinball and video games, not so much anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. They continue as an independent company in that business for over a decade, and they start doing very well. I mean, they're... Their revenues increase quite a bit up through about 2011, and then their revenues start slowly declining a little bit. Uh, You know, they're never able to catch IGT and get to the top of the market. And so finally, in 2013, the company merged with another company called Scientific Games and became a subsidiary of Scientific Games. So 2013 is when WMS Industries is no longer an independent company. They become a subsidiary. Then in 2016, just very recently, the subsidiary was actually merged into Scientific Games. So WMS doesn't exist anymore at all as a company. The brand is still maintained by Scientific Games. Scientific Games uses the brand on some of their machines. But as of 2016, 
There isn't even a subsidiary anymore. It's very, very much dead, very much in a vein of Atari. Mm-hmm. Midway continues to be controlled by Neil Nicastro all the way until 2008, when amidst the defined, declining fortunes of that company, he is forced to step down, bringing an end to Nicastro control of Midway. And of course, they're never able to right the ship, and Midway finally fell apart a few years ago, too. That would be a whole another topic, because that's not Williams, but just to kind of very briefly bring the, the video game arm of that to its conclusion, it's gone too. So there's really nothing left of the Williams legacy. It's just a name. It's a real shame. It's just yeah. uh, it's gone very much the way of Atari, of the name that just passed along because it's recognizable. Right. And, I mean, it's really because they couldn't get away from the arcade thing. I mean, they did in the slot machines, obviously, in which they were very successful in. But from an entertainment product perspective, they were never really able to get out of the arcade. They couldn't progress pinball far enough, fast enough to continue to make pinball a viable product on a large scale. And they couldn't figure out how to do video that wasn't tied very much to arcade style games. And so as arcade style games, both pinball and video entered into a pretty much irreversible decline in the late 90s, the companies just could never recover. I mean, obviously, WMS continued to do well, but it wasn't in the entertainment products anymore. It was in gambling. Their genius was how well they could manipulate the arcade player with their products. And in the end, though, that was also their downfall because they didn't know how to do anything else. They failed to innovate. And as a result, unfortunately, they perished. Well. That brings all the crazy of Williams, sort of a sad whimper of an end. (laughs) To some degree. (laughs) I guess that leaves us with another problem, Alec. What would that be? What we talk about next time. And we have a problem. We do? We do. I've lost a lot of things around here recently. You have? Yeah. They've all disappeared. I, I think they've been stolen. I've been noticing on the security cameras that some red coated red hatted ladies been prowling around hmm. some sort of master spy or something or perhaps a master thief could be a master thief too well i think then jeff next week it's time we went on a little trip i think we need to go across europe across the united states across the entire world and perhaps even across time as we discuss the development and the legacy of where in the world is Carmen San Diego. Or in our case, where in the video game. <laughs> Indeed. So yes, we will be covering Carmen San Diego and all of its fun next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Send us an email at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at PCW Podcasts. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>